0: sickle, bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. And welcome to my study. Please come in and have a seat. All the books read in you are those used to research our show, and the individual to my right here, along with Managing Domestic Duties, serves as our reader for any passages that will be directly quoted from these sources. Her name is Mrs. Carswell. Hello. I should probably start with a word of thanks to those who ordered my book after I mentioned it last time, uh, 31 Rotten Pumpkins. It uh, is a real book, by the way, a small pictorial volume of uh, decaying jack-o'-lanterns rendered in a painterly uh, 17th century style. You can uh, see some images by Googling that name, uh, 31 Rotten Pumpkins, or looking it up on our website. Mrs. Carswell has decided that it's uh, creepy. That was what you called it, wasn't it?
1: Yes. Creepy.
0: Well, I'll take that as an endorsement, I suppose. And... Oh, I believe Mrs. Carswell is tired from her big project this week, moving the hives. You know
1: what else is creepy? Creepy. Going out every day and spending your time tending the bees on some sort of blood-soaked suicide site.
0: Oh, so I, I suppose we're going to talk about the history of the house now?
1: I've been living here for three years and somehow I'm the last to know. Those people you hired to help move the hives told me that everyone in the neighborhood calls this The haunted house!
0: It's probably just the architecture. People think every Second Empire house is haunted.
1: No. They knew about the suicide.
0: It's probably just the style. I I don't see how they'd know. My family had this place for three generations, and even I'm a bit fuzzy on some of those details. They
1: knew about the barn.
0: What barn? There's no barn.
1: Now you're being sarcastic. First, you tell me. The person just slit their wrists. Then, no. then you tell me he shot himself.
0: Oh, he did. It was sort of a 2 part In the barn. Which my great-grandfather had torn down before they even moved in.
1: You weren't going to tell me.
0: I didn't want you to have to move the hives.
1: I've been keeping bees in a death barn. There's no barn. I've been collecting death honey, eating it. Cooking with it, giving it to
0: people. I, I thought it was a nice flat spot and, and far away enough for... From... three years. Who knows what that does to the bees? No, honestly, it's not even 100% clear. There were all these discrepancies. You know, the way they wrote about things back then, They, they, they tried to be so discreet. I've told you what I know. It says something about mortal wounds and a razor in a bathroom, but... That even may be a different incident because they also have him crawling to the barn and and it's not clear about the gun, really.
1: Why does that matter? Why are you telling me this?
0: One account made it sound like he died crawling to the barn, but the dates made it sound like he was crawling for two days.
1: I don't want to hear.
0: Which I I guess it's possible if he's weakened from blood loss. I just feel betrayed. What do you want me to do? The barn's already torn down. I can't tear it down again. Which bathroom? Uh, y- you know there is another sink and tub you could oh, use in the uh, west oh. guest room. <sighs> uh, okay. Uh well, uh, so, uh, this will be episode 95, Spirits of the Corn. I am your host, Al Ridenauer and this show, Bone and Sickle, examines the intertwining of horror and folklore in a historical context. I started the show as a way to further explore this area of intersection after writing my book, The Krampus and the Old Dark Christmas. The Bone and Sickle only exists thanks to the generosity of our Patreon donors who receive monthly rewards, including those uh, short bonus episodes you may have heard back in August. I'll have more on all that at the end of our show. John Barleycorn is the name of an old Scottish and English ballad in which our hero, Sir John Barleycorn, must, as the refrain often says, die. This is because he's to be turned into a mug of beer, the beer being made from barley, but from him, that is. And by the way, corn in the title of our show and in this song is just the old English word for any grain, not necessarily the maize Americans think of. John Barleycorn offers a rather precise allegorical description of the process of turning barley into beer—at uh, least the planting, sprouting, reaping, threshing, drying in a kiln, even, and grinding in the mill—and and Given that it's a human, supposedly, suffering all this, it can come across as a little gruesome. They hired men with sickles to cut him off at the knee. And worst of all, John Barleycorn, they served him barbarously. Then they hired men with thresholds to beat him high and low. They came smack smack upon board, you expect till the flesh began to flow. The uh, vocal here is from a uh, relatively early field recording of the ballad, sung in 1966 by Fred Jordan, a blacksmith's assistant who recalled the song from his childhood. A even earlier recordings were made, uh, going all the way back to 1908. When the put him down by the knee. And it hardly stops in 1908. Back in 1782 in Scotland, Robert Burns was transcribing and dolling up the lyric a bit, lyrics that were already quite old. And even earlier, there appeared in England a broadside in 1624 entitled
1: A Pleasant New Ballad to Sing Evening and Morn of the Bloody Murder of Sir John Barleycorn."
0: Evening and morning. This one had most all the elements of the ballad we know today, but it went a bit further with the revenge allotted Sir John than some more modern versions. After being treated so barbarously, as they say, is buried, chopped, threshed, ground, roasted, all that, he becomes a lovely ale. But uh, this version, most versions of the song, end with some reference to the regrettable consequences of indulging too much in John Barleycorn's ale, and uh, these pains inflicted on the immoderate drinker are his revenge, uh, so to speak.
1: And thus Sir John, in each respect, so paid them all their hire, that some lay sleeping by the way, some tumbling in the mire. Some lay groaning by the walls, some in the streets downright. The best of them did scarcely know what they had done overnight.
0: The uh, same sort of allegory appears in an even earlier Scottish collection, the uh, Bannentine Manuscript, which uh, though published in 1568, compiles material from still earlier times. The ballad doesn't use the name John Barleycorn, naming its character instead Alan Amalt, but is essentially the same song. Now uh, some have been tempted to regard this ballad as having Even older, of fabulously ancient roots, and uh, decode in it pagan references to dying and rising gods or an ancient sacrifice of a human embodying the grain. This was certainly the case with James Fraser, whose 1890 encyclopedic survey of mythology, The Golden Bough, saw in the lyric a description of a divine rite in which uh, Adonis or Tammuz, uh, or human embodying one of these gods, uh, was sacrificed he saw this sort of thing in a lot of places but there really aren't uh, scholars who would support this idea now but we will be looking quite extensively at other observations shared by uh, Fraser in The Golden Bough the notion that a spirit resided in the corn was made particularly vivid at the time of the harvest when it uh, might appear in the shape of animals retreating from approaching reapers and ultimately seeking a hiding place in the last bit of grain to be mowed. This uh, spirit could uh, take any number of shapes, animal or human, and was given any number of peculiar names and mowed down with uh, likewise peculiar ceremony. While there were still plenty of these traditions which existed at the time Fraser wrote his book, which despite any of its uh, erroneous theories is extremely valuable for documenting those, most of them by now have disappeared. Except one old ritual called
1: "Crying the Neck,"
0: which has been revived in Cornwall and Devon, where that last stand of grain, or the neck, is cut by the reaper who lifts the handful of grain, crying out, "I have him! I have him! What have you What have you What A
1: neck! A neck! A neck! Grain!
0: Grain!" In most places, the remaining straw would be kept in the form of a corn dolly, but not uh, dolls of uh, human shape, at least not in recent times. Now they're uh, small decorative forms uh, braided in the shape of uh, crosses or horseshoes and bells and so forth. But human or not, they resemble a child's doll in the sense that they were originally understood as somehow being alive, inhabited by the living presence of the grain. Fraser also mentions larger effigies identified with the spirit of the corn, these constructed from the last of the grain and wood or flowers and adorned with ribbons. These would be carried in processions from the field to the farm at the commencement of harvest celebrations. And in whatever form it's preserved, this uh, last bit of grain and straw would often be fed to the livestock on Christmas or mixed with the seed to be planted in the spring which ensured the health and fertility of the animals and crops in years to come. Fraser mentions quite a few animals which might embody the corn spirit.
1: Wolf, dog, hare, fox, cock, goose, quail, cat, goat, cow, pig, and horse.
0: And that one who cuts the last sheaf sometimes
1: gets the name of the animal as the rye wolf, the rye sow, the oats groat, and so forth, and retains the name sometimes for a year.
0: A particularly interesting animal embodiment around which a uh, substantial body of mythology has been spun is uh, something called the Habergeist. One of the most comprehensive descriptions of this creature comes from the uh, early German ethnographer Wilhelm Mannhardt, whose two-volume Wald und Feldkulte, Forest and uh, Field Cults, from 1875 and 1877, and was uh, used extensively by Fraser in the Golden Bough, as I used it myself in my Krampus book. The Habergeist he describes is usually a goat or goat-like creature. The uh, word Haber is uh, an Austrian word for oats, and uh, geis a uh, dialect word for female goat, though uh, some have also suggested that uh, geis is a corruption of the German Geist or uh, spirit. Sometimes the Habergeist possessed only uh, three legs, two hind and one foreleg, or it might be imagined as a goat with uh, ponderous horse hooves, or a goat with wings. This bird-like nature is often mentioned. Sometimes it's a great and loathsome bird with three legs, or a half-bird, half-goat. In Tyrol, it could be a bird that somehow looks like a man. In Styria and Carinthia, it could even be a winged dragon, or the embodiment of the devil, or the mount ridden by the Dark One. Sometimes it was said to visit sleeping victims at night and press its weight upon them like the uh, nightmare, the druder, causing what we would now call sleep paralysis. In uh, Styria, one odd legend identified the Habergeist as the ghost of a goat that plunged from a cliff with its master during a uh, flight from a creditor trying to seize the animal. Other stories describe it as a departed soul in the shape of a goat haunting the fields around the home in which someone lies dying, something like the Banshee, and like the Banshee its cry is quite prominent in the folklore. This can be simply like the bleeding of a goat, but at other times it's described as the cackling of a goblin, the shriek of an owl, or the croaking of a toad it's apparently rather hard to describe and nobody would want to imitate this sound because those who dared to do so would be attacked by night and killed by the Abbeguise. The creature's cry usually heralded misfortune, particularly if it followed the ringing of the Ave Maria. Should its call precede the bells, however, good fortune might follow and hearing its cry in the autumn foretold a long and grueling winter, though sometimes its call, like the cuckoos, could announce the coming of spring. The attacks by the Habergeist were often used as threats to keep children from wandering into the fields. Mannhardt describes its functioning in Bavarian and Austrian society as
1: a hand of justice by pursuing, for example, sinners. And Frightening the disobedient, including children who torture animals and lazy maids.
0: This association with children's behavior connects the Habergeist, of course, with St. Nicholas traditions, and the creature would sometimes show up alongside the Krampus in the old Alpine Nicholas plays, and even more alongside the uh, Perchten on Epiphany. In uh, contexts like that, it would be represented by one or two performers hidden under uh, hides or a blanket, with the foremost operating the head, wagging about atop a long stick, and equipped with a hinged jaw can be used to snap up the hats of uh, unwary uh, spectators or audience members. Monhart mentions a case from the Bohemian Forest on Saint Lucy's Eve. In which a dark aspect of that saint, much like uh, Frau Perste, is represented by a...
1: Goat with a spread over sheet and horns poking through, but with the name Lucia, as it personifies that saint's day.
0: Like Persta, the figure...
1: Exhorts the children to pray, bestows upon them tasty fruit, and threatens the wicked with the prospect of of having their bellies slit and stuffed with straw and pebbles.
0: Another rather mysterious entity associated with crops in German-speaking lands went by the name of Bilvis or Pilvis, or other variants. While in the northeast it was sometimes seen as benevolent, uh, further south, and more often, it's a destructive being. Sometimes it's imagined as the personification of whirlwinds that might tear through the fields, destroying plants as would the Winspraut or...
1: Bride of the Wind.
0: But it was most prominently imagined as a sort of devil or witch. In his Germanic mythology, Grimm describes the Bilvius as a...
1: Spiteful creature that wants to do his neighbor a rascally mischief goes at midnight stark naked with the sickle tied to his foot and repeating magic spells through the middle of a field of corn just ripe. From that part of the field that he has passed his sickle through, all the grains fly into his barn, into his bin.
0: He also notes that St. John's Eve and Walpurgisnacht are prime times for this sort of mischief, and provides a few more details on how these swaths are cut with...
1: Small sickles tied to their great toes, stepping slantwise across the field. Such persons must have small, three-cornered hats on. If, during their walk, they are saluted by anyone, they must die that year.
0: Because of this defining habit, the bilvis was also referred to by names incorporating the word cut or schneiden, as in the Thuringian term, binzenschneider. The folklorist Ludwig Beckstein, in his German legends book of 1853, further notes that farmers put aside a tenth of their crops as an offering to the bilvis in order that their fields remain unmolested. Should your field suffer from uh, cut swathes that look like the handiwork of the Bilvis, you can detect if this is so using a technique which uh, Grimm describes.
1: On Trinity Sunday or St. John's Day, when the sun is highest in the sky, to go and sit on an elderbrush with a looking glass on your breast and look around in every quarter, then no doubt. You can detect the bilvis.
0: If the devil is spotted, one can rid himself of the tormentor by hurling at it a knife inscribed with three crosses while shouting,
1: There you have it, bilvis! Another way is to carry some ears that the bilvis has cut to a newly opened grave in silence. And, not grasping the ears in your bare hand, if the least word be spoken, or a drop of sweat from your hand get into the grave with the ears, then, as soon as the ears rot, he that threw them in is sure to die.
0: Naturally, the spectre of the bilvis is another threat used to keep children from wandering into the fields, so that it will not, according to Grimm
1: cut off the children's feet or the tendons of the feet
0: another creature is sometimes blamed for these lines cut through German rye fields the uh, Rogenwolf or rye wolf Jacob and Wilhelm Grimm in their 1893 German dictionary describe it as
1: a ghostly apparition in the rye field also the last sheaf and the doll made from it
0: And, of course, it's always described as particularly large and fearsome and voracious, often glutting itself to the point of becoming immovable according to various tales. Its diet consists of the rye which it jealously guards, as well as the occasional misbehaving child who wanders into the fields. When a child is killed by the rye wolf, it's said, his spirit hovers in the nearby trees until the crop is completely harvested. Sometimes the rye wolf is nicknamed yellow tooth, a fright figure also said to lurk in barns and attics or other places where children must not enter. While more frequently a fearsome presence, sometimes the rye wolf is believed to stimulate the field's fertility by running through the grain. And these creatures are often said to be under the control of a figure called the rye mother where rye is grown, or the corn mother more generally. The corn mother appears not only in the German-speaking regions we've been discussing, but also in France, Sweden, and Poland, where, near Krakow, the woman who binds the last sheaf, according to Fraser, embodied her and was
1: wrapped up in the sheaf so that only her head projects out of it. Thus, encased in a sheaf, she is carried on the last harvest wagon to the house, where she is drenched with water by the whole family, She remains in the sheaf till the dance is over, and for a year she retains the name of Baba.
0: In France, near Auxerre, the last sheaf standing is also referred to as the wheat mother, barley mother, or whatever the crop may be. When it's uh, cut, Fraser says,
1: They made a puppet out of it, dress it with clothes belonging to the farmer, and adorn it with a crown and a blue or white scarf.
0: In some places in Germany, and most all the United Kingdom, that final bit of grain is often not a mother, but a grandmother, the granny or old wife. In Wales, in North Pembrokeshire, where it's called the hag, it was not taken down with a single straightforward swing of the sickle, but...
1: All in turn threw their sickles at it, and the one who succeeded in cutting it received a jug of home-brewed ale.
0: This uh, sort of sickle-throwing sport is actually mentioned quite a few times from widely scattered locations, and I'm sure there were never accidents. In Germany, the most common, or at least widely studied figure of this type was uh, not a mother or grandmother, but an ant, the Rogenmuma, or Rye ant. Uh, rye, and uh, an archaic word mumma for ant. There are uh, all manner of variations on this for other crops, and rye mother, not ant, was also used in some parts, as was corn mutter, grain mother, but uh, all these share enough traits to be treated as a single entity. Her most uh, prominent function is as a schreckgestalt, or
1: fear figure.
0: Uh, something to scare children away from straying into the fields where they might get lost or trample plants. The rye ant could also be regarded as a life-giving entity and her passing over the fields was observed in the waving of the grain in the wind. When angered, however, she could become a destructive whirlwind. She was also associated with rain, drought, or lightning, depending on her mood. She sustained herself on a portion of the crop which needed to remain untouched in the harvest. Neglecting such traditions could also cause her to blight the crops with ergot, the fungus known in German as mutterkorn or
1: mother grain,
0: thus named presumably as the grain is marked by the corn mother's displeasure. Sometimes the rye wolves were also said to be the cause of this blight. Her traits as a children's fear figure were richly detailed in uh, Richard Beitel's study Investigations into the Mythology of the Child, a uh, doctoral thesis written in 1933 but only published in 2007, it seems. Stories uh, Beitel collected describe the Riant as consistently being of superhuman size, completely black or white in color, and with long arms and claw-like fingers, the better for snatching unruly children, of course, and her fingers were sometimes tipped with claws of iron, the same material composing her heart and her breasts. There's actually a great deal of emphasis on her terrifyingly large breasts. While most often mentioned as being black iron, they're also sometimes said to be of wood or silver, and are pendulous enough to be thrown back over her shoulders as she tears about over the fields, or she may bear a grotesque multiplicity of breasts. And at the tips of those breasts, if you dared get that close, one would encounter razor-sharp nipples which may also be red hot. But most uh, commonly they're said to dispense something nasty and lethal to children, whom she forcibly breastfeeds, either poison milk, blood, or tar. Or she may simply crush and smother children in her ample embrace. Her face is that of a crone. She may have a crooked nose or bristles like a boar upon her chin. And may, Beitel writes, wear glasses, which sounds like her least terrifying feature. Sometimes, however, she lacks all these attributes because she has no head. And uh, naturally, she carries a a sickle or scythe. The rye ant's wardrobe is often entirely black, sometimes gray, ragged, and fluttering in the wind. And she may wear a white headscarf like a reaper. Sometimes, as in some Czech representations from German-speaking Bohemia, where she was imagined as being very old, she used a crutch to walk. Not only does she seek to kidnap children who stray into the fields, but she may lure them there, bewitching them with her hypnotically waving grain. Children who do not become lost and starve in the fields, she snatches up into a sack or basket and spirits away to her cavernous underground...
1: Root Kingdom,
0: as it's called. Or she may fly off with the children and drop them into the sea to drown. She may pursue her prey on horseback or might take the form of one of her rye-wolves to do so. She's also said to tend a herd of burning cattle who happen to be carnivorous and happy to devour children as well as burn them. She often tries to tempt children into eating bread smeared with tar from a jug she carries or smear their eyes with tar. If they resist, she decapitates them with her sickle. Or she may chop off or tear off their ears, nose, legs, and fingers on a whim. Vital goes on to list an endlessly ghastly array of tortures the rye ant inflicts. She pinches children with iron tongs or beats them with an iron rod, whip, or shoe. She hammers nails into children's heads rolls them about in a barrel spiked on the inside with nails, or grinds them through her sausage maker, or stomps them in her iron butter churn. And of course, she eats children, roasts them on her burning nipples, or boils them in her cauldron, and washes down her meals with children's blood. So, uh, generally not a nice lady, In their book, German Legends, the Grimms relate a relatively benign tale from Saalfeld regarding events that supposedly transpired in 1662.
1: A nobleman from there forced one of his subjects, a woman who had given birth less than six weeks earlier, to help bind sheaves during the harvest. The woman, who was still nursing her baby, took it with her to the field. In order to better perform her work, she laid the child on the ground. Sometime later, the nobleman who was present there saw a rye mother with a child come and exchange it for the peasant woman's child. The false child began to cry. The peasant woman hurried to it in order to nurse it, but the nobleman held her back, saying that he would tell her the reason in good time. The woman thought that he was doing this in order to make her work harder, which caused her great concern. Meanwhile, the child cried incessantly until finally the wry mother returned, picked up the crying child and laid the stolen child back in its place. After seeing all of this transpire, the nobleman summoned the peasant woman and told her to return home. And from that time forth, he resolved to never again force a woman who had recently given birth to
0: work. Uh, Probably a good idea, generally. And um, I have another tale from a much more recent date from a 1926 book. Northwest Thuringian legends by Otto Busch, who uh, frames them as stories his grandmother told as actually being true.
1: It was a long time ago when children indulged in the vice of running through the waving grain. A particularly wild boy couldn't get enough of leading the others deeper and deeper into the swaying field so that many stalks and golden ears were trampled underfoot. Suddenly, there was a roar like a dull thunderstorm in the sea of stalks and a gigantic woman rose up. Terrified, the children ran away and hurried home. For a long time, they were frightened to the core. The boy, however, who had first tempted the others to play this game, was expected in vain by his parents. By evening, the children finally related to them their strange experience. Not expecting anything good, the parents and neighbors rushed to the field in question. After a long search, they finally found the boy lying on the ground, mortally exhausted, and picked up his near lifeless form. The footprints in the cornfield proved that the boy had been struck blind by the rye ant and had thereby nearly met his death. Constantly trying to evade the giant woman, he failed to find an escape, and as a result had merely run about in endless circles. After long, anxious weeks of care, the boy regained his strength and was able to use his eyes properly again, for up till now he had walked around as if blind, but he never regained his former cheerfulness and freshness.
0: Because children are most likely to wander the fields during the day, the rye ant, terrifying as she may be, is not associated with the night, but with the daylight hours. In fact, a number of sources restrict her appearances strictly to the hour between noon and 1 p.m. For that reason, she's sometimes known by a number of other names, uh, translated as
1: Lady Midday, the Midday Mother. Or the New Day Witch.
0: These names and this concept are more common in northeastern Germany and in Slavic regions, in Poland and Serbia, the Czech Republic, Slovenia, Bulgaria, Russia, and Ukraine. Uh, in uh, Czech lands, she would be called the Poletnica, or something similar in Russian. Russia also has an equivalent male field spirit called the Polevoi. While still functioning as a children's fright figure, the noonday witch is more associated with those who labor in the fields and she's said to be responsible for their neck and back pains as well as a heat stroke or a type of heat madness. To avoid being stricken with these signs of her displeasure, workers must be sure to leave the fields by the time the church bells ring the Angelus, that is at noon the moment at which she appears. Because of this association with heat, she's often described as carrying a frying pan. Its touch can burn the crops and anyone nearby presumably, or if she's in a good mood it can be used to block the sun and provide relief. And of course she's also often equipped with a sickle or scythe. The noonday witch can manifest in the shimmering air of a summer's heat. The waving of the grain or as a whirling cloud of dust. When she takes human form she can appear dressed in white as a fair young woman or even a maiden or as a sinister ancient crone gnarled and bent wearing a kerchief over her head and supported sometimes again by a stick or crutch. In the aspect of a young woman She loves to dance and may invite girls resting in the fields to rise and join her, causing them to exhaust themselves in unceasing dance until the hour the sun has set. If a girl is able to outdance Lady Midday, however, she will be rewarded with a rich dowry. She is also known to appear suddenly before people on the field uttering cryptic words or questions difficult to answer. Those who fail to respond are struck dead or decapitated with her sickle. She is particularly ill-disposed toward black cattle or people who enter the field wearing black, which I suppose is uh, never a good choice under the uh, hot noonday sun.
1: No.
0: To That's from the 2016 Czech horror film released in English as The Noonday Witch. Set in contemporary times, it's got some nice psychological tension underpinning the story of a mother and daughter starting their lives over in a small rural village where this mythology still holds sway. It's kind of a slow burn, but mostly satisfying and very atmospheric considering all that sunlight. And there's another Chuck film from 2000, released in English as Wildflowers, which uh, features a nicely visualized noonday witch. I've uh, mentioned this film back in our 2020 Rusalka episode, as it also features a water goblin or vodnik. The film is a word-for-word adaptation of an 1853 anthology of folkloric tales in verse by the Czech poet Karel Erben, collected under the name Kitica, meaning bouquet. goes a bit over the top stylistically, at times feeling like a 1980s perfume commercial, but it's Well worth the watch, if nothing else, for its adaptation of Erben's uh, take on the uh, undead lover motif. His uh, Noonday Witch poem begins with uh, a mother preparing to serve lunch to her husband, who will soon return from the fields. A, A process made exceedingly difficult by a troublesome screaming child. In exasperation, the mother cries out words she will live to regret.
1: Come for him, you noonday witch, then. Come and take this pest from me. In the door into the kitchen, someone softly turns the key. Little brown skin strange of feature, on her head a kerchief pinned, with a stick crook-legged creature, voice that whistles like the wind. Give that child here lord forgive this sinner's sins my savior dear it's a wonder she still lives for see the noonday witch is here silent as a shadow wreathes the witch towards the table slipping mother fearful scarcely breathes in her lap the child she's gripping Twisting round, she looks behind her. Poor, poor child, ah, what a fate. Closer creeps the witch to find her. Closer now, she's there, too late. Listen, one, two, three and more. The noonday bell is ringing clear. The handle clicks and as the door flies wide open, father's here. Child clasped to her breast he found, lying in a faint the mother. He could hardly bring her round, but the little one was smothered.
0: To wrap up our show, I thought I should give a nod to some themes you may have expected from the title Spirits of the Corn. Uh, particularly here in the U.S., with Halloween in the air, you may have imagined uh, fields of maize, corn stalks, and scarecrows. Uh, scarecrows inhabited by evil spirits, of course. And, and let's just say it, uh, killer scarecrows. Honestly, I did toss around this idea, but I didn't find anything with real historical context that would justify a lengthy treatment. There is an 1859 short story I'd recommend, Feather Top, one word, by Nathaniel Hawthorne, as Hawthorne's always good. And it does have a scarecrow given life by a witch, but it's more of a social satire or moral parable than a yeah. horror story. And I've also already addressed the connection between the old uh, Alpine legend of the Zenintucci and the uh, urban legend, the scarecrow of uh, scary stories to tell in the dark. Uh, That was in our Holy Puppets and Medieval Robots episode, if you're curious. It seems that uh, evil scarecrows are almost exclusively a relatively recent cinematic phenomenon. I don't have much information on those sorts of films, and while there may be some more recent offerings that are entertaining, I've actually... Avoided all this sort of thing, as the whole genre was tainted by the notoriously bad Scarecrow franchise of the early 2000s. Six college friends on a holiday break from school. That would be Scarecrow in 2002, Scarecrow Slayer in 2003, and in 2004.
1: Scarecrow gone
0: wild. However, there is a sinister Scarecrow, whom I think provides a bit more grist for our mill, a little more history and Gothic atmosphere. He rides at night through the Kentish coastlands of 18th century England. With his clothes all torn and tattered through the black of night he'd ride. From the marsh to the coast like a demon ghost,
1: he'd show his face then hide. And he'd laugh till he split his side. Scarecrow.
0: This uh, faux folk ballad from a 1964 Disney production describes this particular scarecrow, not one animated by an evil spirit, but a scarecrow identity and costume used by a fictional smuggler and former pirate named Dr. Christopher Sin, spelled S Y N. He's a, a figure created in 1915 by British actor and author Russell Thorndike for his book, Dr. Sin. Tale of the Romney Marsh, the first of three novels featuring this character. By day, Dr. Sin is a kindly vicar, but one we learn with a checkered past as a brutal pirate, Captain Clegg. But then by night, Dr. Sin is a Robin Hood style smuggler, evading the king's tax on goods arriving from the continent and returning contraband proceeds to his own community, as I said, Robin Hood style. His uh, gang of smugglers, like certain historical smugglers, the uh, Buck Riders or Buck Riders in uh, 18th century Holland, for instance, uh, would exploit local superstitions to keep their activities secret, assuming ghostly disguises and painting their horses with luminous paint, and so on, with, uh, of course, Dr. Sin playing a scarecrow. Thorndike stories were adapted as films, the first in 1937 and in a 1962 Hammer production. A funeral moves under the cloak of night, but no one inquires who has died, nor why the corpses are dispatched with such desperate haste. Starring Peter Cushing as the parson who knew every secret of the night creatures. The creatures being the disguised ghost-like smugglers, of course, and, uh, Night Creatures was released in the UK under the title Captain Clegg and the Night Creatures. In the film, smugglers disguised as scarecrows act as spies for Cushing's character. Dr. Sin was renamed Bliss for the film here to avoid legal battles with Disney Studios, Then preparing to release their 1964 adaptation, which was a long three-parter aired on their Magical World of Disney series. Their uh, Scarecrow of Romney Marsh featured a uh, cult favorite, Patrick McGowan, as the yeah, title character.
1: Ah, he's like the devil himself, they
0: say. Riding the marsh is like a ghost. While the Dr. Sidden character was oh, yeah. made perhaps a bit more family-friendly for Disney audiences, uh, with uh, no references to his life as a sadistic pirate, there are some lovely gothic touches, the smuggler's costumes, and plenty of moonlit scenes with cloaked figures and galloping horses and the occasional gibbet hanging in the background, making it all a surprisingly dark offering for a show theoretically aimed at kids. Even stranger, in an on-camera introduction to the series, Walt Disney steps in to claim that Christopher Sin was an actual historic character. But, as we heard in our Banshees episode, Disney also had claimed to have interviewed leprechauns in Ireland, so I don't think this comment engendered a lot of uh, serious debate or worry. The uh, miniseries was popular enough to be edited into a UK theatrical release, Dr. Sin, alias The Scarecrow. And also in England, this 1960s wave of enthusiasm for the character inaugurated a biannual convention in the coastal town of Dymchurch, the setting for the story, something called Day of Sin, which is actually a full weekend in August, and is still going strong. The Disney series also inspired a comic book adaptation that ran from 64 to 65, and even spawned a a Scarecrow Halloween costume sold by uh, Ben Cooper in the U.S. I noticed that one of these recently sold on eBay for $275, so uh, nostalgia does have a price. And around that time, uh, sixty-four, sixty-five, 65, a re-recording of the uh, series theme song was issued on a 45. It seems that it was released around this very time of year, given what they put on the flip side, that is the song with which we'll close. trick a treat
1: trick-or-treat, trick-or-treat for Halloween.
0: Better
1: treat us
0: right or over Your treat, lady. Over your garbage <laughs> I hope everyone's been enjoying our show and that you might have the opportunity to leave a review if you do. As I mentioned at the top of the show, these episodes only keep coming out because of the support of our lovely Patreon subscribers. It's truly the only reason I'm able to bring you these sort of deep, folkloric dives. Uh, When you donate, you're contributing towards the more than 100 hours of work that goes into each episode, and pledge commitments begin at a mere $1, and can be edited at any time. Those subscribing at the $4 level or higher receive a short extra episode, as I mentioned, and uh, other rewards include access to our Patreon blog, downloads of the show's soundscapes, heard right under the narration, uh, the show scripts, my Krampus book, various t shirts and mug options, the bone sickle candle, and unique and hand packed mystery kits. And the uh, online benefits, the whole archive, going back to the start of the show, are immediately accessible. Our latest crop supporters, whom I'd like to thank, include Tina Liebeherr. Skog Troll, Tim Lerner, and C Scott for an annual pledge, and thank you to uh, Adrian Tchaikovsky for upping his pledge. Bone and Sickle is written and produced by me, Al Ridenour. Mrs. Carswell is played by Sarah Chavez, whose projects and writing related to death and culture you can track at sarah-chavez.com. Thanks so much. We're listening.